0: I want to say, Alhamdulillah, God give me everything. I have one bodyguard. That's God. Oh, he's my bodyguard. He's your bodyguard. I'm a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam. The Quran is the word of God. Verily, you shall conquer Constantinople. What a wonderful army will that army be, and what a wonderful commander will that conqueror be. That was a narration of the Holy Prophet sallallahu wasallam recorded in Musnad Ahmad. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to Elevating the Ummah. I'm Mahmoud Ahmad, and our first episode is on Mehmed the Conqueror, the Ottoman Sultan. Now, you may be wondering, why am I starting off with Mehmed Fatih, That's how he was known. We have almost 1,500 years of Islamic history with lots of influential and inspirational figures, some greater than others. But what really stood out to me about Mehmed was the fact that his life was full of achievements. Political, spiritual, societal, any sphere of life. And all of that in line with Islamic teachings. Let me ask you something. What were you aiming to achieve by the age of 21? Because Mehmed's biggest achievement at that age was the conquest of Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. This is a story that inspires ambitions and dreams. Mehmed II, famously known as Fatih Sultan Mehmed, or Sultan Mehmed the Conqueror, was born on March the 30th in the year 1432 Common Era in Edirne in the Ottoman Empire. He died on May the 3rd, 1481, near Constantinople at the age of 49. He was Ottoman Sultan first from 1444 to 1446, that was his first reign. And then from 1451 to 1481. That was his second reign. There was a reason that he had two reigns, we'll go into that. He was a great military leader. He conquered or liberated Constantinople and conquered the territories in Anatolia and the Balkans that constituted the Ottoman Empire's heartland for the next 400 years. He was the seventh sultan from the family of Othman. That's where the Ottoman state gets its name. It's a derivative of Othman, Ottomani state, Ottoman state. Now, there are many accounts of Mehmed Fateh. Some praise him, and some don't shine such a bright light on him. But most of those are biased. But then again, it's not really a bad thing, as one account explains. One factor in our confusion has been the production of deliberately falsified, or at least fanciful, accounts. Paradoxically, the messages of dread circulated by his opponents in the West were not denied, but rather encouraged by the sultan's own image-makers, who were only too pleased to echo and even amplify Western fears of the hostile intentions of the Grand Turk." So is more for propaganda purposes, that negative image or that scary or fearful image that the West had of Mehmed, who they used to refer to as the Grand Turk. Now, Muhammad did many things. He reorganised the administration of the state in order to avoid overindulgence. He improved the army by keeping personal records of each soldier and increasing their salaries. He would routinely replace rulers of regions if they showed carelessness. And after a, a brief period of reforms based on Islamic principles back at home, he turned his attention towards Christian Europe in order to liberate these lands from darkness and ignorance and spread the message of Islam. But let's take a look at his life in a chronological order. Let's take a look at the early years and the first reign. So Mehmed was the fourth son of Sultan Murad II. His mother was a woman named Humar Hatun. Now at a very young age, he was summoned to live in the imperial palace where the Sultan held court as Mehmed was the heir apparent. It was an extremely politically tense environment for a young child to be in, but Mara Hatun, the third wife of Sultan Murad II, who had no children of her own, took him under her wing and they developed a mother-son-like bond, which lasted their entire lives. Now, she herself was a Christian princess from Serbia. But at age 12, Mehmed was sent to Manisa, as per tradition, for his formal training as the heir apparent. But in the same year, surprisingly, he was set on the throne in Adirne by his father, as he abdicated the throne, due to political grievances and the death of his eldest son. This happened in August 1444. And this is when Mehmed's first reign begins. It was filled with external and internal crises. There was a Christian crusade being organised by Hungary, the Pope, Byzantium and Venice all together because they were eager to take advantage of a child on the throne. So in September 1444, the army crossed the Danube, a river in Wallachia, modern-day Romania. These crusaders were led by a man named John Hunyadi, who laid siege to Varna in the Ottoman Empire. Mehmed managed to defeat this crusade at that young age, but according to some narrations, the retired Sultan Murad II returned from his retirement in Bursa and led the Ottoman forces to victory. And that was the end of that crusade, or the crisis that Mehmed essentially faced in his first reign. Now at this point, Mehmed was still on the throne in Edirne, and his father, Sultan Murad, retired again, but this time in Manisa. Now it's important to remember that during Mehmed's reigns, he had three key advisors in his life. There was Zarnos, Shahabuddin and the powerful Grand Vizier or the Prime Minister Chandali Halil. The first two were in one camp and the third in another. Zarnos and Shahabuddin began convincing Mehmed to conquer Constantinople. But Chandali Halil, the Prime Minister, he engineered a revolt with the help of the Janissaries and reinstated Sultan Murad as the Sultan once again. Now here's a quick note on the Janissaries. They were the elite squad or the commandos of the Ottoman forces. When they entered the battlefield, they'd strike fear in their opponents' hearts because they were the best at what they did. Their origins are interesting as well. They were taken from their families in the Christian European regions of the empire whilst they were young and brought up as warriors with absolute loyalty to the Sultan. Anyway, so Sultan Murad II has taken the throne again and Mehmed is sent to Manisa. This happens in May 1446. But this time, two tutors are sent with Mehmed. That's Zaganos and Shehabdin. So he trained under their influence up until he took his throne again. But these were not the only tutors that helped influence Mehmed in those influential and crucial early years. He was also influenced by well-known scholars such as Ahmad bin Ismail al-Qurani and Sheikh Shamsuddin both of whom taught him true Islamic education. Mehmed still considered himself to be the legal sultan, or in some sources, it says that he voluntarily abdicated the throne in favor of his father, but whatever the case, it was obvious that he felt humiliated as a leader. So he thereafter returned to Manisa in the Aegean region, where he got married and continued to develop his intellect. The young royal also gained military insight by joining his father at the Battle of Kosovo in 1448. So this entire period of Mehmed's life, in itself, was a great victory for the Sultan who would be known for his great victories. Because during this period, and up to the beginning of his second reign, he was able to become a self-disciplined man with unique talents, military skills, and intellectual capability, which would help him as the ruler of his empire later on. Now fast forward a couple of years. In the year 1451 common era, Sultan Murad II passes away, and Mehmed ascends the throne once again. This is the beginning of his second reign. But this time he had learned many lessons and had a lot of experience under his belt from his previous reign. Now, he needed to consolidate his new position with senior Ottoman figures and the public. So he set out to achieve the impossible and prove himself. The conquest of Constantinople, known as the Red Apple. Now, here's some context. Constantinople was built by Emperor Constantine in somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century before Common Era and became the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire, for the next 1,100 years. 23 armies, 11 of which were Islamic armies, had attempted to breach its impenetrable walls and failed, including Mehmed's father, Sultan Murad II. Despite these odds, Mehmed believed he would fulfill the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad the one that I narrated at the beginning of this podcast. But Mehmed would do things differently. He would innovate. He would use unorthodox tactics in order to do what everyone else before him had failed to do. So Mehmed amasses an army of somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 soldiers. According to some sources, it was even more than that. Now this army also consisted of scholars amongst the soldiers who along with the Sultan motivated the army for jihad by the thought that they might be the army mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ in that hadith. He also prepared 31 war galleys in addition to the naval fleet which according to some reports consisted of 400 ships. And he built a fortress called Rumeli Hisari near the city of Constantinople and in this way he besieged the city walls by land and sea. This fortress was built at the narrowest point of the Bosporus Strait, to cut off reinforcements from the east. Also, cannons were designed by a Hungarian named Orban, who was handsomely paid by Mehmed, and these were some of the largest, most advanced and powerful cannons the world had ever seen. In fact, they were so advanced that they could be compared to modern-day stealth bombers with ordinary military equipment. That's how advanced they were. The largest of the cannons was over 100 tons. (laughs) Furthermore, in preparation of this siege, Mehmed concluded treaties with Galata. This was a Genoese merchant colony opposite Constantinople, which was only separated by the Golden Horn as well as Hungary and Vienna, so that Mehmed could focus on a single enemy without worrying about being attacked from multiple fronts. But these treaties didn't hold because Christian Europe banded together to fight the Muslim Ottomans. Nonetheless, we can see that Mehmed did his due diligence and preparation as much as he could. Now just before Mehmed laid siege, Emperor Constantine XI of the Eastern Roman Empire tried to sue for peace by bribing the Sultan with gifts and treasures as well as his consultants but Mehmed was determined and didn't change his mind so instead the Emperor sought help from the Pope who was in fact the head of a rival faction of Christianity since the Emperor of the Byzantine Empire was the leader of the Orthodox Christians and the Pope was the leader of the Catholic Christians anyway from a military aspect the city remained one of the best shielded cities in the world because of its high walls, fortresses, towers along with its natural protective elements but on the 6th of April 1453 corresponding to the 26th Rabi al-Aval 875 Hijri Mehmed arrived outside the walls of Constantinople to lay siege now Mehmed was a great orator he was essentially a motivational speaker So he gave a speech to his army in which he inspired his soldiers to go forth in jihad seeking victory or martyrdom. It was a win-win situation for them. He recited some verses of the Holy Qur'an and reminded them of the narration of the Prophet ﷺ about the liberation or conquest of Constantinople and the merits of its army and leader. This really motivated the soldiers and boosted their morale from the onset of the siege. Now bear in mind this was a long and tiring siege where the Ottomans lost a naval skirmish and some land battles against Lucas Justiniani. Justiniani was a Genoese mercenary hired by the emperor to help protect the city, and he was appointed as the commander of the defending forces. In addition to that, there was a huge iron chain blocking the Ottoman fleet from entering the Golden Horn. Now, there were a few unsuccessful naval skirmishes which were enough to dishearten some of Mehmed's advisers, such as Chandarli Halil Pasha, the Grand Vizier, who tried to convince Mehmed to retreat, to cut his losses. But being the military genius and tactician that he was, Mehmed had the clever idea of hauling his naval battleships overland past the colony of Galata, the Genoese trading colony I mentioned earlier, and into the Golden Horn, where the walls were most vulnerable. So they bypassed the long iron chain by doing this. This shows the military ingenuity of Mehmed as well as the high caliber of the Muslim architects and laborers in the Ottoman camp who facilitated this great feat. So you can imagine when the Byzantines awoke the next morning and saw the Ottoman fleet in the golden horn, their morale was greatly diminished. Emperor Constantine had a meeting with his advisors who advised him to flee to a European country and gather new forces to retake the city. But he declined and to his merit, he decided to stay and fight for his people until the end, even if it meant death. At this time, talks of a truce were taking place, but the issue was that both wanted different outcomes. The emperor wanted to sue for peace by paying the Ottomans handsomely. Mehmed offered to peacefully enter the city and not destroy any churches or kill any people. But as I mentioned earlier, nothing materialised because Mehmed wanted to take the city. And the emperor naturally didn't want him to take the city. But this does show that Mehmed was of a noble and compassionate character, befitting of a Muslim king. He offered the most peaceful way of taking the city. Anyway, time and resources were running out. And there were even rumours of an imminent Venetian fleet sent by the Pope to help the Christians, the Byzantines. At this point, Chandali Halil vehemently opposed the continuation of the siege, while Zaranos opposed lifting the siege. So again, they were in different camps even though they were in the same army. The Ottomans kept attacking ferociously, wave after wave, each time trying out a different tactic. And somewhere around this time, an interesting incident occurred. The Byzantines walked around the city with a statue of the Virgin Mary as they depicted her, asking her to grant victory over their enemies. But it fell and shattered. And this was taken as a bad omen by the Christians. And to make things worse, The next day, there were heavy rains and lightning in the city, and one bolt hit the Hagia Sophia church, which again was taken as a very bad omen. This really deflated the morale of even the emperor himself. It was deemed that God had forsaken the city. So at this point, one last attempt of truce is made. Again, Mehmed offered to enter the city peacefully to avoid further bloodshed, offering safe passage to the emperor, his family, all his aides, and anyone in the city. And he even said that citizens could even continue to reside there peacefully. You know, they wouldn't be displaced. But the emperor sent a reply, saying that, first of all, he thanked God that the sultan wanted peace, and that he was even pleased to pay Gizya, the the tax, to the sultan. But as for Constantinople, he swore that he would defend it until the last drop of his blood that he should either safeguard his throne or be buried under the city walls. When the Sultan received the letter, he said, Good. Shortly, I will either have a throne in Constantinople or a grave in it. So you can see that both of them, both of the kings, are very determined in their their aims. Now at some point, one of the cannons overheated and backfired, killing the soldiers and even the engineer Orhan. So it was thought that it's best to cool the rest of the cannons using olive oil so that they could be continued to be used. Anyway, everything was building up towards this climactic end. Both leaders were giving moving and inspirational speeches to their forces and both camps began supplicating to God more fervently for their victory. On the 29th of May, 1453, correlating with 20th Jumad al-Avol, 857 Hijri, the Ottomans mounted a grand attack on the walls, wave after wave, shelling after shelling, led by Mehmed himself. And despite the obstacles and difficulties, on the 50th day of the siege, so that's two and a half months in, the core unit of Janissaries scaled the walls and broke through the gates, injuring Justiniani, the commander of the Byzantine forces. So Justiniani, now injured, decided to escape with his men. So that left Emperor Constantine and his few men, who, to their merit, bravely faced the Janissaries and the emperor himself took off his imperial robes so that he couldn't be recognised and went into the thick of the battle. But he was never seen again. The city fell on the 29th of May 1453 common era, earning Mehmed the title of Fatih or Conqueror in line with the prophetic tradition. He entered the city and commanded his soldiers not to kill anyone anymore and to show mercy and kindness. These are very important Islamic traits. The Ayah Sophia was ordered to be changed into a mosque so that the first jumu'ah could be offered there and apart from a brief few decades it has remained a mosque ever since mehmed granted protection to all inhabitants of the city be they christians or jews and gave them their due rights to live under ottoman rule with safety and security and freedom of religion they could carry on attending their churches and they were even allowed to appoint their own leaders a new patriarch was appointed by the Christians who was even invited to dinner by the Sultan you know all the inhabitants be they Jews, Christians, Byzantines or anyone they were extremely impressed with the kindness and compassion of the Ottomans and their Sultan and this kindness and tolerance were thanks to their sincere adherence of Islam and the Noble Prophet Sultan Mehmed took on the title of Qasr-e-Rum the Caesar of Rome and established Constantinople as the capital which became known as Istanbul now remember 23 armies had failed to achieve what the young 21-year-old Mehmed achieved. This was by far his magnum opus, his greatest achievement. That's not to say that he didn't have any other achievements during his life. You know, he had a long reign after that. And during the entirety of his reign, he managed to conquer the Balkans and Anatolia and also parts of Wallachia and Hungary. Now, the Wallachian campaign has an interesting story. It was the princedom of Vlad Dracula. The very same person who is now known as Dracula the Vampire. The historical Vlad Dracula, though, was known to be a very cruel man who impaled his enemies on wooden sticks. Now, not many know this, but Vlad Dracula actually grew up with Mehmed in the Imperial Palace as a hostage for Wallachia's loyalty. So Vlad's father was the prince of Wallachia and he had left his sons there as hostages in order to show loyalty to the Ottoman sultan, since Wallachia was a vassal state of the Ottomans. Now Vlad was roughly the same age as Mehmed, and Vlad even had a younger brother who was also there in the palace, whose name was Prince Radu. So anyway, fast forward a few years, Vlad assumed the throne of Wallachia, he became prince, or voivode as they would call him, and him and Mehmed actually had a falling out at this point. Vlad didn't want to pay tribute to the Ottomans anymore, So he waged a war on them, essentially, by not paying tribute. But Mehmed himself led his forces into Wallachia. And this was a very trying and testing campaign, which exhausted his army. Because guerrilla warfare was adopted by Vlad and his soldiers, which is proving very difficult to deal with. As well as psychological warfare, such as displaying Turks and Muslims impaled on stakes. Anyway, eventually Mehmed managed to reach the capital, Targoviste. But Vlad had escaped into the mountains and forests by then. So Mehmed decided to coronate Prince Radu, Vlad's younger brother on the throne of Wallachia, who was loyal to the Ottomans. And for the next 400 years, Wallachia remained a loyal vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. So that credit goes to Mehmed as well. But Mehmed was so fixated on finding and executing Vlad that even after returning home, he'd often think about finding and catching him. And he did. 15 years later, the Ottomans managed to find him They executed him, beheaded him, and his head was displayed on a stake outside the walls of Constantinople. So Mehmed got his bittersweet victory at the end. Now these were just some of his military achievements, but let's take a look at his traits and attributes. Mehmed had many commendable traits and attributes, befitting a leader and a Muslim as well. For example, he had firmness of purpose. He had decided to conquer Constantinople at a very young age. And despite all the odds and all the obstacles, he managed go through with it. He was brave on the battlefield, he used to lead his armies into battle himself, he was intelligent as his military tactics proved, he was determined and persistent, he was just and he never felt conceited with power. He was also sincere and he loved to pursue and gain knowledge and the list goes on. The important point is that having such traits was in line with Islamic teachings, and we should all try to emulate these traits which essentially link back to the Holy Prophet and the Holy Qur'an. Now in the public sphere, Mehmed was known for a good number of public works. These included establishing and promoting educational institutions, financing the scholars, an interest in poets and poetry, having written a divan himself which is essentially a collection of poetry, translating important texts from various languages in Turkish, commissioning public buildings and hospitals, establishing and reorganising administrative organisations, improving the army and navy, and establishing justice with law and order, to name a few. All in all, he was a very accomplished king. And that's it. That's the story of Mehmed II, Sultan Fatih, the conqueror, Qaisar Arum, who achieved his greatest dream at the age of 21. My takeaway point from his life is that, yes, whilst Divine Decree has something different in store for each of us. Some of us begin the race with a handicap, whilst others begin 3-0 up. Mehmed was born a prince of an empire. Most of us aren't born in such circumstances. But the point is, that whatever your dream is, start working towards it. Because we think we have decades to achieve our goals, but time is not guaranteed to anyone. So if you want to start a business, a family, reach optimal physical health, or even a podcast, now is the best time at least begin preparing in earnest now, whilst always trying to adhere to the greater standards of Islamic character. If you're still listening this far, I want to thank you for staying tuned. I hope and pray that you find inspiration in this story just as I had when I was researching it. To end with, just a note about the objective of this podcast. The Ummah clearly finds itself in difficult times. But this is nothing new. It's happened before, and we've overcome it. The best way forward is to elevate ourselves spiritually, mentally and physically, and work towards a brighter future. We must learn to set aside our differences and find strength in unity. As the famous preacher Sheikh Ahmadidat once said, and I paraphrase, that Muslims find themselves in a hole. And we expect someone to come and pull us out of it. But the fact is that we should try to climb out of that hole by our own efforts. And that can be done through education, it can be done by focusing more on spirituality and worrying less about what others say or believe. And taking care of our physical appearance and hygiene. It's the it's small things that matter. We can learn a lot of lessons from the actions and ethics of these great people, since there's always room for improvement. So the aim of this podcast is to find inspiration in our rich Islamic heritage, which is often demonised these days, especially in and by the West. So I'm trying to provide a more accurate narrative of these influential figures to help elevate the Ummah to higher standards. Well, that's it for the first episode. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and stay tuned for more inspirational stories in the future, inshallah. With peace, Assalamu alaikum.